Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If you're just joining us today for the first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been going through a series called The Cost of Peace. And uh, the answer to what is the cost of peace is forgiveness. Forgiveness is what it costs to have peace. Uh, We've also been doing a small group series that that we've been going through uh, as a church. We do about this time every year an all-church campaign. And we've been using John Bevere's book called The Bait of Satan. As I've told you in the past, just due to the name of the book, I didn't want to read it because I wasn't sure if it was one of those out there kind of books. Um, But I read it about five, six years ago and it rocked my world because it unfolded and unpacked a lot of stuff in my own life with regard to forgiveness that I had not dealt with. And... uh, I I mentioned how not only did it rock my world, it it forced me to take ownership over some things, to take responsibility for my own actions. I can't take responsibility for other people's actions, but I can for my own. And so forgiveness is an action that is required of believers in Christ. Forgiveness is an action that is required in order to have reconciliation. Forgiveness is a reaction or an action that is required for healing. And so we've been going through this series now for this is our fifth week and the next week is our last Sunday for this series. And next week, just to give you a little preview, um, we're gonna close out our service with an active response to all that we've been learning over the course of the past six weeks. Um, We're gonna have a burn barrel up front. If you're a fire marshal, please plug your ears. We're going to have a burn barrel up front here. Uh, we have purchased flash paper. That is hard to find. Are you, if you're, do you know what I'm talking about? Are you a magician? Anybody a magician? Okay, so flash paper is that paper that goes, right? So it's, it's, it's flammable. It won't burn you, but it goes up quickly. We figured that would probably be the safest thing to use. But So next week, we're going to have tables available, burn barrel here with a light already in the burn barrel, so you don't have to light anything, it's already gonna be lit. And you're gonna write the offenses down that you've had towards somebody else. And this is just a tangible expression of coming up and saying, I'm releasing you, right? It's, it may be the first step for you in finding healing and hope by learning to forgive somebody who's hurt you very, very badly. Okay, so that's a preview for next week. This week, we're talking about escaping the trap. What is the trap? The trap is this snare of offense. If you remember when we looked at uh, the passage in Luke, how many times should we forgive our brother their offenses or sister their offenses when they sin against us? Right. Uh, We're going to look at that corresponding passage today. Matthew has a rendition of that that is slightly different from Luke's, but is not contradictory. So different does not mean contradictory, okay? So uh, let me give you a little background on this. If we were to go out and we're leaving church today and there's a car accident and there are multiple witnesses to this car accident... um, Who's, the police are going to come, they're going to take statements, they're going to get eyewitness accounts. Is every witness account going to be identical? No. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are very similar in this fact. They are referencing the same accounts of the same types of experiences, but from an eyewitness perspective that is different. Now, two of the authors of the Gospels are of the 12, but two are not, but they were a part of the group that were eyewitnesses to these accounts, okay? I digress. Today, we're talking about escaping the trap, escaping the trap of offense that the enemy sets. Now, God doesn't set traps of offense. If we read in the book of James, God does not tempt anyone, nor is himself tempted. But each one is tempted by their own evil desires which lead them astray. When you give in to that temptation, it says it gives birth to sin. And what does sin give birth to? 
A couple of you believe that. If you give in to temptation to sin, what is sin? Missing the mark or doing what God explicitly states not to do or not doing what God explicitly states to do. So breaking God's commands or teachings, okay, would be considered sin. So if we give in to temptation to sin and we actually sin, what does sin give birth to? Death. Death. Not just physical death eventually, but spiritual death. And that's the one that's really the most important for us because spiritual death has eternal consequences. I came across this story today in order to illustrate uh, what we're going to be getting into. And uh, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 18. I'll be using the New Living Translation today. So if you're reading from a different translation, it's going to look a little different. Um, but uh, the, the scripture will be on your screen. But I want to give you a chance to turn there uh, while I'm reading and, and telling you this illustration. There's a childhood poet. Some of you who may be poets or love literature may know this name. Elizabeth Barrett was her name. She actually led a life of, of semi-invalidism, meaning she was handicapped pretty much her whole life. She fell in love with a guy by the name of Robert Browning in 1846. And um, there's a little bit more background to Elizabeth's story. She was raised by a tyrannical father. She, he was just very brutal. He wasn't physically abusive, but very controlling over her life. Her father did not like Robert one bit. And so she and Robert decided to go and get married in secret because she knew her father would not be okay with this prospect. After the wedding, they ended up moving to Italy. Somebody say, whoop, whoop, <laughs> right? Italy's beautiful. They ended up moving to Italy. But feeling the weight of love for her father, even though he was super controlling, she began to write him regularly. And so for 10 years, she would write him these letters of how much she loved him and cared for him and, and how much she did regret not having him be a part of their special day and all of that stuff. So after about 10 years, she received a box in the mail. And the box had every one of those letters unopened, sent back to her. Today, those very letters are among the most beautiful classic of English literature. And had her dad just been willing to open and read them, just a few of them, the relationship between him and his daughter could have been restored to better than it ever was. See, holding tight to unforgiveness steals blessings in our lives. I don't know why we do this to ourselves. We, when we harbor unforgiveness toward another person or ill feelings or hatred in our hearts, it exempts us from sure blessing. When we forgive, when we are at this point of where we're willing to let go of offenses, something amazing happens in the heart, the life, and the soul of the one who is willing to forgive. There is a rush of peace. There's, there's a sense of, of, of ability to know that God is pleased with what you've done. There's a blessing that comes in forgiving. But so many of us exempt ourselves from the blessing that God desires to pour out on us because we refuse to forgive. Jesus spoke often on this subject. Often in the New Testament, Jesus' main subject that he ever spoke on was the kingdom of God, okay? We oftentimes say, well, it was on salvation. It was on redemption. Jesus used most of his time to teach in all the various different towns he went to to talk about the kingdom of God. Many of the parables are written, the kingdom of God is like this, he would say, or the kingdom of God is like that. Why would he spend so much time talking about the kingdom of God? Because he is preparing us for what the everlasting life will be like. When I question in my mind whether a decision is right or wrong, 
And it may be a gray area in Scripture, because there are black and white areas in Scripture that we have to take very clearly and, and very seriously. But there are a lot of gray areas that the Bible doesn't speak about. When I think of what heaven is going to be like, I oftentimes will filter those questions or thoughts through that. Will this be a part of the kingdom of God? Will I be allowed to do X, Y, or Z in the kingdom? Will I be allowed to say or to feel these ways in the kingdom of heaven? See, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven because he wanted to prepare us for how we are going to spend eternity. Do you think there will be bitterness in heaven? Resentfulness? Unforgiveness? Do, do you think there will be any, any hatred in heaven toward another person? Is there selfishness in heaven? No. Now, I can't, in my own human mind, conceive of that kind of a reality. When I try to press into that kind of a thought process to, to say, what is heaven truly going to be like? That, when I try to unpack that, I think, wow, that is a utopian idea. But if Jesus said it's true... If the scriptures point to that reality and the bulk of Jesus' teaching is about that kingdom which lasts forever and of whose kingdom is defined by peace, then I have to be able to say, okay, that is the reality I'm working toward. And as a believer in Christ, this side of heaven, it is, it is beholden on me to live out that citizenry here. We pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? Church, we've not done a good job of that. There are some of you in this building right now that have a conflict with somebody else in this building right now. And that won't be happening there. And Jesus gets very explicit about this. He says, unless you forgive someone else of their sins, your heavenly father won't forgive you. Okay, well, what does that mean exactly? I dug into this this week more intent than I ever had my whole life. I was trying to find any way in the world to make that statement say something that it really said. I looked at the Greek. I tried to unpack through multiple different lexicons. Guess what it means? And Jesus didn't just say this once and on one occasion. So if he says it more than once, do you think we should heed it? Yes. If he says it once, we should heed it. But if he says it more than that, of course we should heed it, right? And so he says, unless you forgive others their offenses or their sins, your heavenly father won't forgive you. Guess what that means? <laughs> There's no other way. There are some things that do have deeper meanings. You can take this lock, stock, and barrel to the bank. That is exactly what it means. See, this is why... The gospel of Christ is not as palatable as it may seem to many. Jesus gets a pretty good rap in society because only one side of Jesus is mentioned within the culture. He's love. He is forgiveness. He's all of these things. But yes, though he is all of that, he is also a God of justice. He is a God who says, unless you're willing to do this, you can't have this. Well, I don't like that Jesus. I like the other Jesus better, who lets me do whatever I want, and he's just like the, you know, old grandpa in the sky. He's like, oh, champ, you'll get it next time. <laughs> little fella, and he ruffles the hair, whatever little bit I have left on my head, and he says, you're slugger. You're a cutie. Just look at you, little sassy pants. But that's the kind of Jesus we want to worship. One who doesn't have, I won't say a mean streak, but a disciplined streak in him. 
But we're told Old and New Testament that God disciplines those he loves. As a parent, I understand that in a way that I couldn't without raising my own kids. I, I didn't understand when my, my mom would say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Yeah, right. <laughs> but now as a parent, when I make choices that are going to disrupt the joy of my child's heart because they necessarily need to be disciplined for something they've done, it doesn't bring me joy. But I love them. I've gone off script. All right, so Matthew 18 has so much in it. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it starts off with the disciples asking Jesus, Jesus, who's the, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? And then you have, now it's not in this passage, but then you have a vying for position by a couple of the disciples. Can I sit at your left? Can I sit at your right? When, you're in your, when you were on your throne in heaven, could we be the closest to you? And then they have their mama go, and I <laughs> think this is hilarious. Hey, mama, go put in a good word with Jesus for us, right? Um, so, Jesus, my children want to be your uh, right-hand and left-hand men in the kingdom. Jesus, at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 18, where the disciples are basically saying, who's going to be the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they're not, they're not, I want you to understand, they know that God is the greatest and that Jesus obviously is greater than they are. And that the, but okay, who's next in line? And Jesus is in this community and there are children playing in the community and he calls to one of the kids I don't know, knee-high to a grasshopper. I said that this morning. Somebody didn't know what that meant. But a little fella to come over or a little lady to come over. And he calls this child over to them and he puts them on his knee and he says, unless you become like this little one, you'll never be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if that was the first time you'd ever heard that, in church we hear that, uh, that analogy, that, that passage, and, and we just kind of, I think, let it roll off because we've heard it so often. But Jesus' disciples... They lived in a culture where children were not held in high esteem, especially girls. If you had boys, they carry on the family name, they could do all this, that, and the other. But children were basically, I won't even call them secondhand citizens. They weren't even considered that high on the social scale, especially when they were younger than 12 or 13 years of age, when they would have come of age to become men or women in that culture. We've gone through a bar or a bat mitzvah, okay? So the younger kids, Jesus is pulling them over before their bar or bat mitzvah, and he says, you've got to become like one of these little ones. Now that would have been utterly groundbreaking news to hear. Because if you are a typical Jewish individual in that society for Jesus to pull somebody into the mix of them who was inconsequential by all social standards and he says you got to become like this what is he saying to them if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven he says this in, in, in another area you have to become the lowest servant the greatest is the one who serves the first will be last the last will be first who was the last in society? Well, children were very low on the totem pole. And he says, you've got to become like one of these little ones. Now, yes, there's a sense of innocence and wonder and trust in a child that is not there as the child continues to grow because as children grow into adults, they become jaded. They get to see the world through different set of lenses. They become cynical. That's what sin does. That is what the fallen and broken world does. But those of us who are Children of God through belief in Christ Jesus should maintain that childlike innocence and faith that Jesus pulled into the midst of the disciples at that time. He then says that in addition to being like one of these little ones, that we should forgive one another. And this is where we get this church discipline model from. If someone sins against you, hurts you, betrays you, rejects you. If somebody sins against you, 
you should first go to that person and confront them on it. Gently, it says, in multiple other areas of Scripture. And if that person says, oh my goodness, I didn't know I hurt you that bad. Would you please forgive me? You have won a brother or sister over and you've reconciled the relationship. But if they reject you and say, that's stupid, I'm not going to forgive you for that. I didn't do anything wrong. You then take another person with you at a later time and you say, listen, this really did hurt me. I really want to make things right, but... I, I'm, can we reconcile? And the person says, you know, I've been giving some thought to that. And I guess, you know, you're, you're right. Um, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Then you've won a brother or sister over and you've brought reconciliation to that scenario. But if they reject you that second time and say, you're stupid. What? And you brought somebody with you. Come on. You ganging up on me? It says, then you take them before the church. Now, it's not a facility. It is the body of Christ. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ are the church. And then you confront them a final and third time. And if they still will not be reconciled with you, it says you turn them out of the body of Christ. Does that sound hard? This is Jesus' words. Does that sound harsh? I mean, we're too afraid of hurting the feelings of another by living out the scripture that we're, we're, we're willing to let the scripture slide so that we can not be uncomfortable. Does God tolerate sin? No, he doesn't. But he, he did something about sin. See, we all have a way out of the pit called sin and death. Not one of you or me or anybody else across this nation or globe today sitting in a place like this could have ever been good enough to deal with the problem of sin or death. And God knew that. And so at just the right time in human history, he stepped out of eternity and into time as the perfect person in a man we call Jesus. This is the good news, is that we couldn't do it, but he did it for us. So now in this new covenant, through his blood on the cross, all we have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you and you believe it in your heart, and you confess it with your mouth, and then you're saved. It's not going and burning a sacrifice on an altar or paying a certain penance of money. It's all about what he did for you and not what about anything else you can do. So we come to this passage now after all of that. And Peter pipes up and he asks him this. Listen, Matthew 18, verse 21. Okay, Lord, how often should I forgive somebody who sins against me? All right, so he's just been given this word. If somebody sins against you, you, you go to them and try to make it right. If they, if they reject you, go to them a second time. If they reject you, go to them a third time. So in the Jewish culture, remember what I told you? In Judaism, you were only required to forgive somebody three times. After three times, you didn't have to forgive them anymore. So Jesus seems to be alluding to the fact you, you make three attempts, right? And so now Peter's saying, okay, am I hearing you right, Jesus? How many times should we forgive somebody who sins against us? And Jesus says, and Peter says, should, should we forgive them seven times? So he's taken the three, adding three more, and then adding one more for good measure. The number seven in the Jewish culture means complete. And so Peter is probably like, hey, Jesus, 
seven times, right? <laughs> right, buddy? And he's expecting Jesus to go, man, you are good. Yes, Peter. This wasn't revealed to you by any human, but from God the Father. And no, Jesus says, no, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. Or some translations say 77 times. Regardless of 77 versus 70 times seven, the reality is Jesus is saying however many times it takes. However many times it takes. Therefore, he says, the kingdom of heaven. What's the main subject Jesus ever taught about? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. Now, so Jesus is telling him, all right, so let me give you an illustration of this, Peter. And those of the rest of you around me today. Do we not have our scripture for today on the screen? Arrow. Okay, sorry about that. So you should follow along in your Bibles. <laughs> all right, I'm just noticing now it's not up there. So verse 23, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his counts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. This is not a true story. It's called a parable. A parable is used as a teaching tool to elevate a bigger truth. So listen to what Jesus is telling him that follows up this 70 times seven comment. In the process, one of the debtors of this king was brought in, uh, brought, uh, excuse me, one of the, uh, oh, I lost my place. Yeah, da, 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 da. In the process, one of the debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. So that is not the exact terminology. It says denarii or, or talents in, the, in that context. Uh, Jesus is giving an astronomical amount of money here, okay? This, this servant had borrowed so much from the king that he was at the point that even a lifetime of earnings could never pay the debt back. Jesus is using astronomical amounts of money in this country. It'd be like me saying a gajillion dollars, okay? I want you to understand the context. Jesus says, there was a king who had a servant who owed him a gajillion dollars, all right? So you get the context. He couldn't pay it, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Now, this was a custom in that time period and time periods prior to that that would happen. If you could not pay a debt, then the one you owed the debt to could take you as a servant, sell you to somebody else, your wife and your children, piecemeal you out and take everything you did own and sell it to at least make some kind of adjustment for your debt. Now this guy owned or owed a gajillion dollars and his family and possessions wouldn't even make a dent in that. But it says in verse 26, the man fell down before his master and he begged him, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all, I promise. It says the master was then filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. So, okay, not only did the master have pity on him, what did he do? It says he then released him to go back home, instead of saying, okay, we'll work out a different payment plan with you, what does it say he did? I'm sorry, a couple of you heard what I said earlier, right? He forgave the debt. What does it mean to forgive debt? Cancel it. Forget about it. I want you to hear that. Remember, he forgave the debt just as we should forgive Okay, sorry. All right, anywho. But then the man left the king. I mean, can you imagine? Like, whew, he's letting me off the hook for a gajillion dollars. Uh, can, can you imagine somebody coming to you and saying, all your debts are canceled financially? You don't owe anything on your house, your cars, your student loans, your credit card, all of that. I just took care of it for you, okay? You don't owe me anything, okay? You're free. 
I want you to f- put yourself at, how would you feel? Right? Woohoo! Praise the Lord, right? And so he's walking away from his master, it says, and he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Okay? Now, we use the terminology denarii, I think it says 100 denarii. Uh, so that's a denarii is a day's wage. You'd earn a denarius a day, a hundred days. What, how much is that? Three months-ish over, just a little over three months. So he owed him $1,000. And he goes and he says, brother, I've just been forgiven a gajillion dollars. And uh, I'm going to forgive you your debt. It's not what it says, is it? What's he say? It says he grabbed him by the throat. All right, I want you to get the imagery here. He grabs him by the throat and then he demands instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him, the guy that owned $1,000. And he says... Please, just give me a little more time. Please, just a little more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. It's the same words that the other guy used to the king. But this servant, he wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until all the debt could be paid in full. Now, I've thought about that passage for a little bit too and I'm thinking... If you put somebody in prison, how are they going to pay for their debt? (laughs) Well, how do you earn money in prison, right? It'd be better to, all right, if I'm going to let you at least make an attempt to pay me back, I'm going to let you continue on with your regular daily routines so that maybe you can come up with the cash to pay me what you owe me. But he throws him into prison until all the debt can be paid back. Do you see what this servant has done to his fellow servant in not allowing him to even attempt to do anything about the situation. When some of the other servants of the king's uh, throng of servants saw this, they were upset. You see, because this man that had been released of a gajillion dollars would not forgive this man who owed him $1,000 off the hook or at least time to pay it. And so all these other servants are like, "Uh uh-uh. Oh, no, you didn't? Right, I, I can't do that. Oh, no, you did I can't. I, I've got no rhythm. And they were ticked off. They were upset. They were disgruntled. They were pent up about this. And they went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. You know that servant you let off the hook for a gajillion dollars? He just went and and threw in jail one of the other servants because of a $1,000 debt, and he demanded payment instantly. And then the king, so upset about this, calls the man to him again. He says, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me? Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Didn't say he'd been sent to prison until he could pay his entire debt. He was sent to prison to be tortured And then verse 35, just as like the little bit of icing on the cake, Jesus says, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters. (laughs) I'm sorry, Jesus' word's not mine. Wait a minute, did I read that? Let me go back. I just read the parable of the servant who had been forgiven a gajillion dollars, right? And... Who would not forgive his servant of a thousand dollars? And Jesus grabbed the guy, threw him into prison to be tortured until all of his debt could be paid. 
Could he ever pay his debt? No. Especially not being in prison where he's being tortured. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. I don't like these words of Jesus. I don't know how many of you do. Because there are people that hurt me and I have, I've done nothing to deserve it. There, are been, there have been those that have sinned against me, that have rejected me, that have betrayed me, that maybe have physically or mentally abused or hurt me. And I, I just don't want to have anything to do with them. As a matter of fact, I want their worst to happen. I want revenge. I was talking, I forget who it was this week. What is the fate? What, we've watched them through chronologically just recently. The Marvel series. Who are the heroes in the Marvel, ser Marvel series? Who are they called? The ah, the Avengers! Semi-God-like figures who come in to save the day. There's only one person who is ever able to really do that. And he didn't come in and blow up things except systems that held people back from him. Jesus comes in and as a sheep led to the slaughter, he takes up the sins of the world on a cross. And the very words from the cross, and I said this last week, were, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Was that just for those who loved him? Did he only say, forgive those who love me? No. He said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The one who's nailing the spikes through his wrist, forgive them. The ones who had cursed him all along the road, the Via Dolorosa, up to the hill of Golgotha where he'd be crucified. The ones who were spitting at him and jeering. The one who beat him senseless with a cat of nine tails prior to that. Pilate, who was in a bit of a quandary because of the political upheaval during that season who was the one that had to be the final authority to condemn Jesus to death. The religious leaders who arrested Jesus on trumped up charges. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The ones throughout his journeys of the three years of his ministry who rejected him, called him a fool, who thought his message was too fantastic to believe. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Brandon, you haven't even gotten into the points yet. Here's a key point. Sin is sin and it all requires forgiveness. How many of us are in here are with, have, can say that we are without sin? Have never sinned a day in our life? Right? So we, we all stand in condemnation, correct? We're all on an equal playing field, okay? There is one who could ever say that. And we are not him, and he is not us. And yet he gave his life for us and forgave us. And we have to receive that gift willingly in order to have that forgiveness cover that multitude of sins. See, this is why Jesus at the Last Supper could say, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the sins of many. Not all. Why not all? Because not all would receive him. Not all would drink of that cup. Not all would do this in remembrance of him. He knew even then that there would be people that would reject the good news and go to their dying breath and be cast into eternal darkness. That wouldn't only receive his forgiveness, but would not extend forgiveness to others. Forgiveness, the first point really quickly, is limitless. Forgiveness is limitless. 
But I want you to understand, as commentator and biblical scholar Douglas Hare proclaims, that unlimited forgiveness is not to be confused with sentimental toleration of hurtful behavior. And this is where the lines get very, very blurry. Is my forgiveness of another person mean that it's okay what they've done? No, never. In God's kingdom, those kind of things will not exist. It is never okay for someone to sin against you, just as much as it's never okay for us to sin against others. But here we are in this quandary, in this dilemma, because we all are, we're all guilty of it. So then what do we do? Well, so-and-so's sin is worse than mine. Mm. Okay, so here's, there's a theological debate we could have here, but suffice it to say, let me try to bring a little bit of clarity in the short amount of time we have. There are different punishments for different levels of sin in the Old Testament. You go back to the Old Testament law, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and uh, if there was an accidental death because your axe head flew off and hit somebody and killed them behind you because you're like, whoa, whoa, they got light really quick, and then somebody's like, hey, you hit me, and they fall over, Right? I'm just bringing some comedic value to it, but the reality is there was a difference in that kind of murder versus an intentional murder that's premeditated. You agree? Okay, I would hope you would. All right. And so there was different punishment for that in the Old Testament. But on a grander spiritual scale, James tells us this. If you've broken one part of the law, you've broken it all. Okay? Shoot. So what camp does that put me in? If I've broken even one little part, a minor part, a misdemeanor, if you will, it's as if I've broken it all. See, in Matthew 5, we have Jesus saying, I didn't come, don't, don't, don't misunderstand why I've come. I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not any of the law will pass away until it's fulfilled. What did Jesus do that we couldn't? He didn't break even the slightest rule. He was perfect in every way. He sealed that contract. He fulfilled that old covenant. That old covenant now doesn't make it invalid because he goes on to say, you've heard it said if you commit adultery... But I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. <laughs> so he, he then takes that law that, he just fulfill, that he's fulfilling, and he ramps it up. <laughs> Come on, you're loving and forgiving, dude. You're supposed to make this easier. He did make the access to God easier. We can now, because of what Christ did, approach the throne room of grace confidently. We don't have to jump through hoops or circles or any other thing. All we have to do is surrender our lives to Christ and we are there. That's the miracle of mercy. Christians, here goes on to say, are often guilty of forgiving too much too quickly. And I want you to hear what he says. Don't say, oh, so... I don't have to forgive right away. That's not what he's saying, but listen to what he's saying. Christians are often guilty of forgiving too much too quickly. The misbehavior of alcoholics is not to be laughed off. Ministers who fail to control their sexual impulses are not to be lightly excused. Teenagers who betray their parents' trust are not simply to be forgiven. A much more loving course of action is to insist that they amended their behavior so that they can regain that trust again. Okay? In this sense, uh, excuse me, in these and other instances, premature forgiveness, he writes, is an easy way out that does little to help the offender or to heal the damaged relationship. Then he goes on, Contend with me here for just a moment. Because the matter of dealing with such offenders has been treated in verse 15 through 20. He's talking about if somebody sins against you, go to them privately. If they 
reject you, go to them again with the person with you and so on. He's referring to that because it's already been dealt with. The last section of this chapter cannot be misconstrued as condoning evil, okay? The king who's letting the guy off of the gajillion dollar debt is not like he's flippantly saying, eh, whatever. But see, the guy, what is the guy doing? He's like, he's repentant. Oh, please forgive me. I'll, uh, please, I'll pay it back. I'll, I'll do whatever I can. There's this sense, a true and dire sense that the guy knows that he's in the wrong toward his king. And he just needs more time. Come on, please. Just a little more. And the king has pity. It's not the king was fluffing that off, if you will. It does, however, he says, serve as a corrective against a too zealous application of the preceding section. Yes, the offenses are to be confronted, but only in a spirit of gentleness, gentleness from Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Even when dealing with the stubbornly unrepentant, we must forswear vindictiveness and by God's grace give evidence that we are ready to extend forgiveness because we ourselves have been humbled by God's forgiving love. We love because he first loved us. Thus, we should forgive because he has also forgiven us. Forgiveness requires mercy. You cannot, the two are synonymous. You cannot have one without the other. What is mercy? forestalling judgment on someone for what they've done to you or letting them off the hook for the offense is forgiveness but the mercy is not enacting justice against them even though it's deserved withholding that okay forgiveness requires mercy great forgiveness requires great mercy and where forgiveness abounds, mercy abounds all the more. However, there is no mercy. Where there is no mercy, there is no forgiveness. Let me ask you this question. One of the reasons we don't extend mercy or forgiveness is because our focus is often not in the right place. When someone's hurt you, where does your focus, focus go to immediately? To the hurt, doesn't it? And rightly so. I'm not saying that's unnatural or wrong, but what happens if I continue to look at the hurt and I continue to focus on the hurt? If I continue to focus on the problem, what happens? The hurt begins to manifest and grow. See, whatever I nurture in my life will begin to grow. Whatever I cultivate in my life will begin to grow. So the hurt grows bigger. What happens to mercy and unforgiveness? Well, they get thrown by the, uh, mercy and forgiveness gets thrown by the wayside and revenge and unforgiveness become the focus. As the hurt grows, so do my intense feelings of anger toward this other person. And here's the weird thing is I can justify my anger as righteous anger against them because they're sinners and they've hurt me. They deserve judgment. It's rarely in those times that our focus goes to Christ. And we remember how much we've been forgiven and how much we are required to forgive. It doesn't feel natural, does it? That's why when we've been hurt, the first place we should go is to our knees. Lord, I've been wounded. But I know you have been too, and by your wounds I'm healed. Lord, I've been hurt, but I know you were hurt too. And you are the God who heals the hurt when nothing else can. God, I have been betrayed, violated. And just as you were stripped bare for the world to see and your naked body was scourged by whips, 
Lord, remind me that what I have to forgive is nothing compared to what you had to forgive. And so, Lord, I'm asking you, help me forgive the way I have been forgiven. I pray that you would bless my offender. Oh, Lord, pour out heaps upon heaps of blessings on them. And I pray that they would come to know you in a personal way. It requires mercy. And lastly, and this is the negative comment. Those are positive comments. Unforgiveness has eternal consequences. Now, before I get to that, I had this quote by N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, written multiple different books. N.T. Wright writes, um, forgiveness is more like air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in for yourself and you will suffocate very quickly. Do you hear that? So breathe in, let's do this exercise, and this is not a mindfulness exercise or anything like a spiritual guru stuff, just. Now when you exhale, push, it, push as, all of it out as you can and hold it. Don't breathe back in. When you refuse to forgive, oh, you can breathe back in now. When you, refused, when you refuse to forgive, you refuse to breathe back in God's forgiveness. Do you catch that? That's what he's saying. I'm, it should become like breathing to us. And when you push out the breath and breathe the breath of life into others through forgiveness and peace and reconciliation, you refuse to receive back in and you suffocate I'm going to read this passage <clears throat> as I get ready to close. Very similar passage to this one, and it's correlated. Jesus correlates these two together. Matthew chapter 6, great sermon on the mount. The disciples are asking Jesus, teach us to pray. <clears throat> and he says, okay, when you pray, don't babble on as the Gentiles do. They do these repetitive mantras, and they do this repetitive stuff on and on and over and over and over, thinking they're going to get some kind of hearing from their God. So he says, don't, don't do that. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again and again in this chant, okay? <clears throat> don't be like them, for your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Huh. Okay. Pray like this, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Do you see what he's saying there? Just let me unpack that for just a second. Forgive us of our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Do you see what precedes? Okay. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And then after that Lord's Prayer, which we oftentimes pray in settings like this, in verse 14 and 15, listen to the words of Jesus again. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. These are not easy passages to preach because I know they don't make us comfortable. They don't make us feel good all the time. But they're necessary. What Jesus instructs his disciples to do is to forgive as we've been forgiven. As our worship team comes forward this morning and I close out, there's a story uh, told of a soap maker. Soap, you know, bar soap that you lather up with. You're like, I'm the liquid soap kind. Okay, then a liquid soap maker, whatever. All right, bar soap, is we can divide ourselves over anything, right? All right, anywho, soap maker, 
wasn't a Christian, actually atheist soap maker, if you will. He was walking along the road with a preacher one day, and he said to the preacher, you know, the gospel you preach hasn't done much good in the world, has it? I mean, there's still a lot of wickedness in the world, and there's wicked people that do evil things. If truly the gospel was true and real, wouldn't you see evidence of it somewhere? Wouldn't it have eradicated the evil in this world? Wouldn't the world have progressively gotten better over the past 2,000 years if the gospel you preach was true? Quietly, they walked along, and the preacher didn't reply to his friend's comment until they passed a dirty little child making mud pies in the gutter. With this image right there, the preacher spoke, soap hasn't done much good, has it? Let me look at that kid over there. He's dirty. There's still a lot of dirt and dirty people in the world. If soap was the solution and the real, I mean, if it was a remedy to dirt, then why aren't there cleaner people in the world? Oh, well, you know, said the soap maker, soap is only useful when it's applied. Oh, exactly, said the preacher. We weren't promised the world was going to be perfect, nor even get more perfect. In this world, you will have troubles of many kind, but take heart, I've overcome the world. How did Jesus overcome the world? He died for us. He didn't raise up an army and kill down every evil person, because if he were to do that, he would have to wipe out the whole human race. It's not just the Hitler's of our day and age that are evil. And the only saving grace and hope we have is that God has forgiven us as we've received his son Jesus into our lives. How much more so should we be offering that forgiveness to others, even those who do us harm? As we close today, I, I don't know, I honestly don't know where you are, what hurts you've carried, can I, can I ask you an honest question? I stand up here every week. I actually ask you honest questions all the time. I don't ask you dishonest questions. That was a silly notion. But can I ask you a question? What holds you back? What holds you back? I know some of your stories. And I'm not calling you, well, I guess I am sort of calling you out. What's holding you back? I, I mean, if forgiveness is offered freely, then, then why won't you forgive? Again, it doesn't mean what the person has done towards you was okay. It was wrong. It was evil. It was bad. And it should be called out as such. You need to be able to take that deep breath back in so you don't smother under the weight or suffocate under the weight of unforgiveness. There's some of you in here that are living sinful lifestyles. It's not just unforgiveness that's holding you back from God. It's the lifestyle you're living. And I'm not here to judge you. I would never judge you. I'm not God. I have a judge who will judge me someday, but it's the same judge that will judge all of us. And because I love, as he first loved, I want to tell you, you're still going to be separated from God if you have an unrepentant sin in your life. Why do you carry that around? You've convinced yourself that it's okay or that my way of doing this is exactly what God wants. That is the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy and is the great deceiver who has blinded you to the reality of your sin. Sin is fun at times, but it carries a weight of consequences that will sink you eternally. What does it cost you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? We have these altars up here. These altars have been here for decades. I don't know what types of prayers that have been prayed there, what things have been left at these places, but I still believe they are sacred and holy places only because people utilize them to be set free. And so my offer again, as it is every Sunday, and to those of you at home who may not be here, kneel where you are and pray this prayer. Lord, forgive me as I forgive others. 
Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Cleanse me. Make me, make me new. Make me a new creation. I pray there would be no vestige of the old self after I've surrendered to you. And help me to not go back to those old ways and patterns of things. Oh, Lord, create within me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence, O oh Lord. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. That is our prayer, just as David prayed it millennia ago. Set captives free this day. Bring deliverance upon this place and this space, I pray. In Jesus' name, would you stand as we close? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.